Hi listeners, welcome back to another episode of Lead With Data with myself, Rena Gami. The guest on my show today is Shira Saga, who's currently the Chief Data Officer of Latitude Financial Services. He has been consecutively recognised among the top 10 analytics leaders in Australia for 2019, 2020 and 2021. Shira has spent 24.7% of his life helping key decision makers and C-suite level executives make smarter decisions using data. He strongly believes that every organisation can become truly data driven. Shira likes to go back to the fundamentals, asking people to ask more questions of data and being a tough taskmaster on getting actionable outcomes from data on all possible occasions. Join my podcast as we discuss how to make data a useful and usable part of everyone's job. You won't want to miss this episode. Welcome back to an episode of Lead with Data. I'm absolutely thrilled today to be joined by Shira Saga. He's the Chief Data Officer of Latitude Finance. And um, look, I'll get him to give us a background because I never, ever do, um, do do them justice. So I'll get him to give us a bit of a brief of his sort of career journey and uh, where he's at now. Thanks, Rena, for having me. And thanks for getting my name right. Really <laughs> that happens. So that's, that's a big win already. Um, like you, I'm the chief data officer for Latitude, which basically means um, my team and I, we try to help people make better decisions with data, be it data science, algorithms, dashboards, analysis, yada, 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 and such, right? So we take care of all kinds of data, all aspects of data at Latitude. Uh, and I've done something similar all my life. So data is my hammer. Ever since I've started working, I've always worked in the data space. It was called something else back then. It's called business analytics back then. Then it was called data analytics. Now it's called data science. It'll be called something else in a few years, decision yeah. science and so on and so forth. But that's what I've done. Um, and if I had to explain to someone what I do for a living, and I often use this line, I am the lost and found guy um, that helps find something. If you've lost something, I help find reducing data. That's what I do for a living. Yeah. Uh, there was no data, no tech. I'd be doing the same job at a railway station, trying to find the lost thing, thing that you've lost. So that's what I like to think I do. Um, how I do it could be through algorithms, could be through dashboards, could be through analysis, could be through a lot of strategy packs. But the essence of what I do is help people make a decision. So that's who I am and that's what I do. Excellent. Now, I know through sort of conversations, um, one of the, you know, you're a very strong believer of if you don't take action with data, um, it's very, very wasted. So tell us a bit more about that. So I like to believe the, the reason people, so there are two things, right? One is, Everybody has made a decision all through mankind's history, or humankind's history, if you want to call it that. Uh, we decided to walk out of the cave and live wherever we want to live. We decided to do a lot of things. So we've always made these decisions and we never had these systems to make decisions. We still made them based on internal understanding of how things are. Um, and so I like to think we've always used data in different forms. Right now, data looks and feels as a digitized form of tables and structures and stuff like that. And we don't like to use them because they feel difficult or magical or mythical or mathematical. And my constant approach to people is, you've decided today to wear this particular polka dotted red shirt and that's an algorithm that you ran in your mind. You look, opened up your wardrobe, you had a sample space of stuff to wear and you've said this one, this and this, and this looks nice. So you've run an algorithm in your mind. So we all do so many algorithms and so many decisions every day. Why can't we do that in our live work? work lives why can't we do it in our governments why can't we do it in our other forms of social lives too is what my constant pitches to people and that's what i try to do for a living 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I know we've um, also touched on it as well. And, and you like to quantify everything and you, you touched on it there that it applies to everything that we do. Um, I think you mentioned that, you know, at a point, um, you know, even WhatsApp chat histories are like text mind and sentiments analyzed across the years. They're the kind of things that you've got um, surrounding your personal world. Um, and so, yeah, t t tell us a bit more about that. Now, like I said, I, it's, it's an aspect of, of um, in, in the data space, it's a concept called quantified self, which basically means you're trying to quantify everything that you, you're trying to do. Yeah. It was a big deal a few years back when personal data was being captured. Now it's funny, it should be in a, even a much bigger deal. We all bear smartwatches, which track every single aspect of our lives. We have phones, which track everything we do. We have so many uh, work systems to track how many emails you send, when do you work, yada, yada, yada. The reason I do that is not just to not just for intellectual satisfaction to capture it and do something with it, but funnily enough, I've found trends and patterns in it which really help me do things differently. For example, if you for example if you use Microsoft Outlook in your business or yeah. Gmail, a lot of us think of it as just an email sending mechanism. But what it is actually is it tells you how well connected your enterprise or organization is, who's talking yeah. to who, how much do they know each other. If you run a big team or a bigger organization, more often than not, you're going to have silos. Nobody's yeah. going to find it unless you survey. Data will help find that information. How many people are working long hours? What does people's work? These are things that you cannot find out unless somebody walks up and tells you, or you can find it and you can change it. I've changed a lot of my own personal habits based on the data that I've tracked. And therefore, it's a big hobby of mine to track personal information, chat messages, and stuff like that and find trends in it. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, tell me about an interesting fact about yourself. Interesting fact, I, I've used this quite a bit now, uh, use data to methodically reduce weight. So I used to be 106 kilos a while back and now I'm in the 70s, which is a really good number place right. to be. And so I've done that methodically, both my wife and I, we tried to plot every day what we do, how does it track against what we eat, how is it tracking and try to understand how that works. And that's really helped us. We, my wife often jokes that we're trying to do this the data driven way. Yeah. And we know exactly what our weight is going to be the next few days based on what we should do. And therefore we can adjust our intake. And if you want to go out and have a bit of a binge, we can do that and figure out what to do there a few days later. So that's something that we've done using data. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Now I know the topic of today, which you thought would be really sort of interesting to talk about was, you know, how you can use data to be um, useful and a usable part of everyone's job. And, and that, you know, I think I think when we when we talked about it, it was not just you know, um, your team and the experts that sit in your team, but it's the entire organization. So, um, you know, from that point of view, you know, t tell me a bit more about that. And then I guess really, you know, how, you know, being fully digital, how does that make a company more data-driven and agile? Good. So the one thing I like to think is, if you want an analogy for what data-driven looks like, it's how, what we all do today. We all use computers to do every single aspect of our jobs. I don't think there's hardly a job unless it's in the, say the um, construction industry or the mining, somewhere else that does not use computers to actually do their day-to-day -day work. Every yeah. single aspect of our jobs, be it in the banking space, in the retail space, it's all in using computers. So this would have been unthinkable 20 years ago because computers were used only by experts who knew how to use a computer and very yeah. And I think that's where data will be 15, 10, 15 years from now, where everybody will be using data. So it's a plus skill, as I call it. So you could be a marketing person. You could have marketing plus data as a skill. You could be a 
talent um, talent recruiter, you could be a talent acquisition specialist, that plus data. It massively change how you do your jobs. We already do it in a very, very small way. Tools come up with standard insights, but what if you could take the insight the tool gives you, something you already know, something else that's coming somewhere else, put it all together without having to talk to an analyst or a data scientist. That will massively change how you get your work done and that will be the um, differentiator for you in terms of your business versus someone else. And so with that in mind is why we try to at least the businesses I take uh, a part in, I try to push them where not just us, it's not just the data team trying to churn stuff out. Everybody in the organization, be they in marketing, in operations, in customer service, or in the front line, they all know how to use data and what it means. They all know if they do want to, they can go deeper and do a lot more than what they can see. And they all can contribute back into the work that we do, where they feel like they have a right year, right place. They have the rightful place to come and say, I know I don't understand how to write an ML algorithm, but did you consider this, 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 and this? Because I know that's how this thing works. So understanding how an algorithm works without having to understand how to write code is also a key part. So being able to do all those three things is really crucial. And that will make the organization stand out. And if you looked at any successful organization in the world today, beat all the big tech majors, everyone have a metric, everyone has a metric, everyone knows how to, how they're working towards that metric and what it means for them. So that's really critical. Yeah, and how, um, I, I guess for larger corporates um, or maybe even for small companies, how do you um, drive that kind of culture? Because yes, I know it's got to start, you know, typically it's got to start from the top, right? So, but how do you drive that down to your, you know, your, your front end staff? So like you said, the ones that are not necessarily always thinking about what they're putting into a system, but how do you drive that culture to ensure that the data that is coming in is then usable and, you know, something that, that you can provide some insights on? Yeah. So there is, there's a three-stage process and I call it the data T, uh, T-E-A, because I like to have an acronym. Yes. So data T stands for tools, education, and access. So if you have the right tools in the business is when you can make the data reach the right people. So when I say tools, it could mean dashboards, it could mean simple um, data packs, it could mean anything where people know where to go and find it. The reason Google is so popular is because anybody knows that they can go to Google and find information. We don't have something like that. People have 15 dashboards, 25 different platforms, blah, blah, blah. What if there is a tool everyone knows I can go to data.companyname.com and find everything I want? That's, that's tools. Once you make the tools available, the tool could be a dashboard, it could be a SQL workbench, it could be a machine learning platform, it could be a tool where you can put data in, you can download something from somewhere, put it in, and it's a data engineering platform, it'll show up in your database. And it could be anything. So that's what I mean, generic tools. Once you do that, then you need to educate people on how to use it. A lot of times I've seen, if you start educating people on say, when people talk data literacy, they immediately go to education alone, yeah. which is just how to write SQL, how to interpret, all of that's great. But I've seen when you try to just do education, it becomes hard because people cannot connect to, I've learned this, what do I do with it now? Yeah. So give them the tools, then immediately tie it to the education. So people are like, I understand what it is. I have a tool to do something with it. Let me try it. And people will try it because it will make their lives better. And the last part is then access, because once you start doing tools and education, you, the dangerous part is people don't do any of these because they're worried that some people might look at the wrong metric or should be not be looking at that. If you have the right access levels for the right set of people and you've defined all of the gov data governance parts, you don't have to worry about what somebody is doing because 
they're going to keep going deeper and deeper but only in their own space and won't go into stuff that they shouldn't go and yeah. if you start doing more of that then more people will want more tools better education better access better tools better education and so that flywheel is what we typically need and so it starts from that so it starts from having the right tooling having the right sponsorship for building that data foundation in the enterprise then trying to connect it to the literacy component and then trying to connect it to data governance Excellent. Thanks for that. Because I think um, that's quite often where a lot of companies um, kind of become a bit unstuck where, you know, you've got a certain, um, uh, you know, you've got certain teams that are very good with knowing what to do with that data, but then it's usually where the data is coming in from, where there's a lot of inaccuracies or, um, you know, gaps. And, and so it's, it's just about sort of understanding how you can, you know, build that culture. Um, and like you said, you know, it's about kind of bringing people together and making them be part of that journey, um, I think, which is which is the challenge. But I think if you get it right and do it well, it can yeah. certainly, yeah, you know, transform, I suppose, transform the way your business makes decisions ultimately. Um, so right, awesome. Um, tell us a bit more about, um, you know, in terms of some of the data analytics capabilities that you've put um, in place at your current workplace at Latitude Financial. So we're trying to build that first component, as I mentioned, where we're trying to build not just reporting and dashboarding as a service where anybody can go and consume all simplified reporting, but we're trying to build machine learning as a service where our hope is not just our team, people in our teams, but people across the spectrum can come in and build and train and test on what machine, machine learning models without having to know how to write code, without having to worry about all the other aspects that come with machine learning, which is getting data, training it, deploying it, all the ops side of it and not worrying about what will happen next. So we're trying to build that. We're trying to build data engineering as a service, which basically means anybody in the business, anybody, I mean, anybody can bring a file, put it somewhere else, it'll show up in our massive data warehouse. Not have to worry about how it does happens because once it shows up in a warehouse, you can put a dashboard on top, you can analyze it, you can share it with someone else, you can share it with your partners and stuff like that. So that is, those are capabilities. So what we're trying to do is simplifying a lot of grunt work in the form of services so that our teams can then focus on building smarter work. So my, the teams are focused on right now on working on building better personalization, better customer understanding, better uh, customer targeting and stuff like that, and not working on the more boring and mundane work, which is now all being automated away with the services. That's what we're trying to do massively at Latitude right now. Excellent. And what was the environment like when you um, sort of joined them and, and, and where, it, where you're at in that journey at the moment? So like, it has really good bones um, or it had really good bones in the fact that they have a lot of really smart people who've done really good work over a period of time. Uh, but the fact was because a lot of work takes a lot of time. And so they were busy doing the work that they always were doing and delivering the output and the value that it brings, not being able to move out of it and break that deadlock and trying to do something else. They've always wanted to do something else, but given this takes X amount of time, you just cannot do something else. So what we're trying to do is we've understood and identified what people wanted to do, what the businesses wanted of them, and how do we get away from this work to be able to do better work and more relevant work. So that's, that's what we're trying to change right now. Yeah, excellent. Um, now, in terms of, um, I guess, um, you know, sort of uh, when you talked about it, you know, creating kind of smarter ways for people to be able to access this information. So things like, I suppose, self-servicing, you know, dashboards. Um, but I know you you also mentioned it's not just about having access to dashboards, but also, um, you know, having open access to discovery and engineering. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what you mean there? So the thing with 
so there are two form two forms of analysis that people do so one is open access to dashboards this is data that is probably already uh, massaged and put together in a particular form defined as a metric everyone uses it it's almost like reading a news headlines right so you read the same news headline somebody else will read the same news headlines it's not going to differ but sometimes you just don't want the headlines you want to do your own investigative pieces you want to analyze it and the moment you start getting into it these are say the power users it's going to be the 5% of the business that does it unless you are in the data team you will not have the access to the database so you will first be hunting around for access and not be able to do it and so yes will limited two is you you don't you already have access but you don't know what to look for because you don't know how this metric is defined yeah. and what it means who defined it and what is the lineage of it what's the ancestry behind it you wouldn't understand and the third challenge is even if you understand the one and two you will not be able to do it on a regular basis so you've done an inquisitive piece of analysis understood what happened if you want to expand it or do it for a much larger scale or keep doing it regularly you don't have a platform so what we're trying to build there is a data cataloging tool which is what i call google maps for data anybody can come and say i want to know more about customers in my insurance for i will show all the tables who's used them where does it get used how was it defined da, da, da. so it solves one and two and for three is where we're building another platform where people can then do a piece of code do a piece of analysis and then share it with everyone else so everyone can see what the code looks like what the output looks like and also schedule it for it to be run regularly so that's what we're trying to build so that more of the power users of data can also feel empowered rather than just having to look at dashboards regularly yeah yeah and 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 on that how um would an organization or how can an organization build and support um self service analytic capabilities so i would say stop thinking of self service as just dashboards that's that's always my point because yeah. when people say self service the first thing that pops up is all these colorful dashboards and visuals and i'm like yes that is correct and you will have to build these two other capabilities and then identify how does your data ecosystem look like can the answer that you're trying to find out is can a non data engineer come and access and use it if she can do it then you have a really good system if you don't what do you need to do there can a non data person come and understand what's the metric and how it's defined if she can do it then you have a really good data ecosystem if not then you're far away, far away away so trying to solve for those two pieces which is starting on the data cataloging journey yeah. and starting on the data pipeline journey is probably more important for a business and i suppose again on that point um with a business who's got a, you know or what they feel they've got a relatively good um you know sort of structure around um their data and analytics capability where could they start to look if they feel like the user can use it and you know utilize the um reports that are coming through the data engineer goes in and can access what they need to to be able to build and optimize the reporting and modeling where would they start to do a bit of a i suppose a bit of a risk analysis almost to see how robust their processes are like if they're already sort of doing what they feel they should be how would an organization go back and look at what they could do to improve that so one is uh, if you have the right platforms the platforms need to be auditable which means if somebody's writing a piece of code and doing an analysis and scheduling it there is something that's auditing what's being scheduled who's doing it and what's happening and so what we do is we monitor all the work that gets scheduled we monitor all the pieces of code that are joining different tables through our catalog so our catalog says some say for example customer id is a yeah. piece of information 
it says um, 25 people are using this to make these decisions and it shows up in these 15 reports. But in the last three days or the last three weeks, somebody started using this to inform this algorithm too. And so once you have that level of visibility on when did somebody start using it for what purpose, you can then either have a conversation on are we doing the right thing? And then we have these forums, for example, if you're doing using this for making AI driven decisions, we have AI ethics forums where people can come and understand are we doing the right thing? Are we using the right metrics? Are we using the right variables? And similarly, from the data engineering side and the data quality side, we have forums where are we using the right quality of data? Because if data is not a 100% or a 90% quality, we shouldn't be using it. So how many tools and platforms and algorithms use the wrong quality of data and therefore are we doing the right thing? So on those two fronts, we try to have the checks and balances in place. Great, great. And that's really useful because um, I think a lot of companies or where, you know, they're, they're particularly individuals um, in your situation where you're trying to get uh, the management to see um, how you can improve your capability. Um, it's almost about being able to sort of understand and be able to back up um, why they want to change things or improve things. So that's why I sort of wanted you to share a little bit more on that. So thank you very much for that. Um, in terms of, um, I guess, tips and strategies around um, so data literacy, strong data penetration within an organization, um, yeah, tell us a, a bit more or, or give us some tips and strategies um, that you think would be useful to, to share with the community. So one is data literacy is not the data team's job. That's the one that I often tell people. Because they often think, because it's as per the data in them, you're going to be training us on how to use data. That's not correct. Data literacy is part of the enterprise learning and development curriculum, right? So the way that happens is the data team can help shine a light on what's there and what are the tools, but it needs to be built in a way where it's tied with the enterprise strategy on where we want to go and what are the metrics and what are the business areas we want to focus on. So everybody, when the CEO walks up and she shares a number about how the business is doing, Nobody's like, I don't even know what that means or what she's talking about. Or when the CFO walks in and says something, people know what she's talking about. So yeah. that is important. So that needs to happen. So one, it is not the data team's job. It's the enterprise's job and the data team support them. Two, if you don't focus on the tools, you, you can do all the literacy you want. You could have LinkedIn learning. You could have data camp. You could have Coursera. You could have Udemy, but it will mean nothing because people can't practically use what they've learned. So just theory in data literacy is not good enough. You need the practicals behind it or the lab behind it, as they call it. So if you don't build, invest in the right tools and just focus, put money into literacy, it's going to be a waste. It's just going to be somebody's certificate and not use benefit the company. Yeah. And three, the, there should be a KPI around how much data in the business is being used. So I often say, this is something I've started pushing a lot, is data teams have a KPI, for example, on not, not data teams, say, for example, teams, different teams have KPIs on how many customers did you bring in or yeah. what is the volume you drove, blah, blah, blah. I think data teams or the business should have also a KPI on. I've collected 100 gigabytes of data. How much of that have I used? And if you start doing that, the recent survey say, or the recent analysis from a lot of companies say that less than 2% of data we collect is used. And so we spend so much time and effort collecting this data, spending money on the technology and the tools and the people. And if you're just going to use 2% of it, what's the point in it? You would never invest outside in your real life in something that you're never going to use. Why would you do it in the data space? So that happens because people don't understand what data is coming in. And so if you have that as your key metric, everything else will then eventually work out for you. Yeah, yeah. And, and do you think that needs to start from um, the top? Or do you think 
that starts from the beginning in terms of what's the data are we capturing, what are we using, or does it start from what do we want to capture and what are we looking for? No, I think it's a it's a mix of both, but it should start at the top. It's like an enterprise scorecard or a business scorecard. Mm -hmm. It should not just be about customer satisfaction. Yes, it's about customer satisfaction, about say volume growth or revenue growth or profitability yeah. and what percentage of data are we using because it's an asset. You would never say, I would have a financial team that would let spend burn money all at once. Nobody, yeah. not every, all of us. Yeah. Why would we do the same thing with data? It's, it's until the end of the day, it's a currency. It's a different form of currency. If you're not using that currency properly and don't have an ROI on that currency, it's just not going to get benefits. And if you set that one metric up, everything else will automatically follow because you have that metric. People will start working towards it. People will start having the conversations. People will try to get everyone on board and try to use more of it. So it's the metric driving the ecosystem uh, instead of waiting to change all the ecosystem and then work on that metrics. That's how I think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really interesting because I think quite often you don't know what you don't know. Hmm. So yes, the, the management team have got KPIs, you've got the scorecard, you've got, you know, your requirements at an enterprise level. Um, but then, you know, there, there's quite often they don't know what they don't know in terms of what can that data provide. Where does that gap get bridged? Because um, you're saying the data literacy doesn't necessarily sit with the data team. It's all about the information and what's been captured and how it's been utilized. How do you bridge, bridge that gap and then find and enable the business to make better decisions using more of the data? Because you, you, know, you said only 2% of data gets used what happens to that 98% that people are capturing? Really good question, right? So, what, so uh, let me answer that last question. Yeah, first. sure. Sorry, I asked a couple there. No, no, that's okay. So a lot of the information we capture digitally on everything that the customer's doing digitally, you can collect all of it and people spend hundreds and thousands of millions of dollars collecting it, but we don't do anything with it. We collect it in the hopes that one day we would use something with it and we yeah. never do that, right? And we, everyone wants to be like the Amazons and the Facebooks of the world to do something smart, but we just don't have the appetite. So we just collect it because it's easy and cheap to collect. And so all of this sits away somewhere. And the simplest thing is not thought about. Yes, you're collecting. For example, I've seen, worked with websites and companies where they collect all of this information. But the moment you want to use it, you will be told, I, 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 don't, I can't exactly find out who Rena is here because I didn't think about tagging her as Rena. I yeah. know somebody, but I don't know who that is. So all of that is in junk. You can't do anything with yeah. it. You might as well throw it out of the window. So that's, the, that's and there are so many sources like this where nobody's thinking about that problem. And that's where I'll answer your first question. Yeah. How, does, how does somebody come to it? One, the business says, these are the top 10 questions I need to answer this year. Why are my customers doing da da da? Why are my partners not doing da da da? And all of that stuff. When you ask, ask those questions, the big questions, then give it to the data and say, I want data for all of them. You'd be surprised how many data teams really can only answer one or two of these questions because the business is asking totally tangentially different questions. They're like, I want to understand what the competition is doing. And therefore, we're like, we don't capture competition data. Yeah. We can't do anything with it. Yeah. I want to understand what the customer is doing digitally and then offline. And therefore, well, we can't connect the customer offline and online. We don't do it. Yeah. What is the customer? When did she join us? And what is her ratio? And what? how much will she spend? Well, we don't have the data sense capability to do that. So why do you have a huge team? What are they doing? They are capturing whatever they have been capturing for so long, just keep continuously doing that. And then just minimum value coming out of it. Yes. And so if the business says, I will want these 10 questions answered, I don't care. Then saying, 
what data we have, then that match needs to happen. And then I call it the DAM or the data availability maps. And so if you start for pointing out where is the gap and then investing in to make sure that the gaps are, gaps are bridged, that would be the ideal way to go about that data strategy. Excellent, excellent. Thanks for that. Um, in terms of, um, I, I guess, um, you know, you, you've worked in, in many organizations and, and probably different sort of environments. Um, I, I suppose give us an example or, or, or talk through um, an experience of yours where you've had uh, particular challenges in trying to drive the data strategy um, or try to deliver what you've been asked to deliver, because this is a common I think obstacle that uh, individuals that particularly at your level could come up against where, you know, a business wants to do this, you go in and the reality is that they don't, they're not really set up or they're not really ready to. Um, have you sort of experienced that? And if so, how did you overcome it? Yeah, so in a different life for a different business, um, we were asked to build an algorithm that would tell somebody how to go into the warehouse and pick and pack an item. Mm -hmm. For example, they would, they would have to fulfill it themselves. And the algorithm would basically say, go to aisle B2, then go to aisle A A7, whatever it is. Yeah. And so when you try to explain that this works, the immediate there's immediate resistance because the supervisor of the warehouse, she said, I, I've been running this place for 27 years and I know how to run my team. The algorithm would not know how to run my team, which is a fair, fair statement. And so for me, that was a light bulb moment, not the fact that Algorithms are not smart. It's just that people, unless people buy into it and people know what is there in it and humans embrace it, it's not going to work. It's more about change management, less about the algorithm themselves. And so that's the biggest challenge I've seen in every piece of work that I've done. It's not about being able to do the work. It's about then getting people to use that work is the biggest challenge. Um, I've, I've been in conversations where people like, if you're really that smart, why don't you go solve world hunger now? And we're like, no, we'll solve world hunger later. We'll solve <laughs> So that's, that's fine. So, but we've had those instances. So how do we do it? We walk in their shoes. We open it, as they call it, open up, open it up completely, show them exactly how it works, try to educate them on it, uh, try to see that we can get their inputs in it. They feel like they've built it. And eventually that person then called it her algorithm, not our algorithm. Yeah. That level of ownership is needed. And for that to happen, you have to co-build, co-create, and also walk in their footsteps and see their pain points. They're not saying no because they don't like data or technology. They're saying no because they feel that they, people on the computer cannot understand how a real world works. So if you walk with them, help understand what happens, and then try to tweak it mm -hmm. and put in all the big challenges that are there, people are more than happy to take something that will make their lives better. So that's the biggest learning for me. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and um, in terms of, um, I guess, and, and you've touched on this a little bit around um, data ethics, and I think that's a whole sort of topic in itself as well. Um, and, you know, capturing, uh, you know, people's data or customer data. Um, what should companies um, be doing to make, I suppose, their customers understand what a company is doing to protect their data and privacy? So one is companies first need to come up with their own charter on what is it that they want to do with that data. Not because, because unless you have something written down, you're always going to keep changing the goalposts. Every yeah. time something happens, you're like, oh, maybe not. As once you put it, it's set it in stone, you're like, this is what we've agreed to. We can't change it. And once that becomes practice, then you start creating awareness to the customer and saying, did you remember you shared this data with us? We're using it for this. And so that can only happen once the company themselves know. I think not a lot of companies exactly know what they use their own data for or where it is or how it's stored. 
I think we need to start it first and then we can then educate customers about where, where is it, how are we making sure that your data is safe and how are we making sure that we're using it for what we're supposed to use it for because the Australian privacy principles and a lot of that may explicitly mention that if you collect something, you'll have to tell them what the primary purpose is and what the secondary purpose is and what the tertiary purpose is. Mm. And they cannot use the data for any other purposes. I, don't, I think people don't understand it. So that's that can only happen if the companies understand it and then they explain to their customers. Yeah, because quite often, obviously, a lot of companies, and, and I do it myself, you know, you'll, you'll put your information in for a particular service and you'll see the small print, you know, of this information will be used for marketing purposes. But that's so generic. Um, what does that actually mean? So, you know, I know there's a requirement, but are companies actually, you know, because we're getting smarter. I mean, I'm always conscious of what I'm sharing and how much I'm giving away. Um, but I don't know, I, is, there, is there a protection around the data, even if a company's sort of saying? I mean, yeah, so, some, of, some of the more regulatory ones I understand, but. Yeah, so. Uh, especially with the per personal information, the privacy policy, there's a new privacy act that's going to be um, brought into a bill next year. And that's mm -hmm. getting even more stricter about what information can be used and stored, mm -hmm. even inferred information. So for example, I've seen, I've worked for a fashion company where a lot of people would sign up and not give their um, date of birth because they don't yeah. have to. Yeah. And so we, we would infer their age based on what they buy. Right. And you're not allowed to do that anymore. And if you do that, you're not allowed to use that anymore. So the regulations are catching up and they're getting smarter because the regulations we have so far in Australia are as of 1988. And so that is just getting a revamp after 30, whatever, 35 years. And so that, when that happens, things will get better eventually. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's it, it's pretty interesting, isn't it, in terms of, um, you know, what our data sort of gets used for and, you know, how, how everything's um, being stored at the moment. Because you've just got no idea, like, You'll sign up to something, you get all these random text messages and, and all of that. And we, we actually this afternoon had a cybersecurity um, webinar where we were sharing um, what happens to the data. And, um, and it's interesting, I was talking to another client actually um, probably recently because I think there's a bit of a debate, isn't there, Shira, around whether fully going to the cloud is opening you up to more breach on your data. Mm -hmm. um, versus having the hybrid models, which I think particularly some of the more regula regulated and financial institutes and, and things like that are opting for. What are your views on that? Um, I probably don't take a strong view on it, but what I've seen is it doesn't matter where you store it as long as you store it safely. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is how it gets stored, even if you store it on your own on-prem machines, and then if you store it in the form where somebody can access it and understand and a human being can read it, it's going to be painful. So you'll have to de-identify it and then store it, which just removes the problem of where it is stored and how it is stored. Nobody needs to know your name or your email ID to yeah. do something for you. All they need to know is other information about you and who you are. Not They don't have to know who you are. They only have to know what you do. And yeah. I think companies have to make that conscious call and then it wouldn't matter. For example, in the financial world, we can't save any personal information for customers. So we'll have to de-identify everything, anonymize all the information, and then only store that in the cloud. So we already don't have any risk. So if that data gets leaked, even I wouldn't be able to tell what it is, neither would anybody. So if as long as that is done, the right safeguards are there, or even when data is read, it has to be read with a particular key and stuff like that, nobody can breach it. And so I think that is probably more important than where it is stored. Yeah. Like how it is stored is probably more important. Yeah. 
Do you think there's more capabilities around protecting the data or there's more tools and technologies around protecting the data that's stored in the cloud because of its availability of, of the tools and technologies or do you think they're equal? Actually, it's, it's equal. It, it really matters on how you design that platform yourself. So it's up to you on how you how the design is done. It really, yeah. there's no difference between storing it on the cloud versus on your own on-prem service. Yeah, yeah. Because there's this constant um, debate, isn't there, about being on-prem and, and being in the cloud and what's, you know, what's the future and what are people doing? So, so then, you know, if, I suppose, and, and again, very illiterate to the, to the data tech, technical side, you know, from, from my point of view, but why would a company invest in going from an on-prem environment to a cloud? What? So one is disaster recovery. So a non-prem server cannot give you, if something goes wrong and the server crashes, and your whole business is on that server, you're screwed. Unless yeah. you pay double the money to have three versions of that server running three times, that is provided by the cloud. The other one is scalability. If you want yeah. to scale an on-prem, again, it takes months and months of procurement. Yeah. In the cloud, you can just... So the compute and scalability is probably what makes cloud attractive. Yeah. Um, definitely on-prem has its benefits. You own it. It, it. The financial treatment of it is different. It's a capital expense versus cloud platforms have slowly become operational. So there's a different things, but I think it's the scalability and the compute. If you're a smaller company who cannot afford to have engineers managing your servers, you just want, want to press a bunch of buttons and grow fast. And I think that's where the cloud comes in really well. Yeah, excellent. Um, and I guess, and, and I like to ask this because a lot of um, people in my network will be watching this who are aspiring you know, you know, data professionals who are at a certain stage in their career wanting to grow. What do you believe are the key kind of attributes or what is it that you look for when, I guess, when you're hiring or, you know, what have you experienced throughout your career that you felt would be useful for people to, to sort of do or keep in mind? For me, there are three things. One is data is all about a lot of common sense. Like I said, it's Yes, coding and all of that is really good. That's a zero skill. You need to know how to learn to code. But I'm slowly getting to the fact that once you know that, it's all about playing logic and common sense. All of us do that for all the key decisions in life. If we want to think about it logically and solve a problem logically, that's the most important skill. Um, number two is your willingness to unlearn and relearn something. Mm. So a lot of people come with biases. I've When I recruit in the market, and you know, in this market, people will come with a particular tool or a technology that they know, and that's all that they want to keep doing all their lives. That's not correct because things change so fast. And as long as you're not willing to drop it and learn something else, you will become a relic really quickly and you'll just be doing that. And that's not going to be fulfilling for you. So being willing to relearn and unlearn, unlearn and relearn something that's yeah. important. And the third one is um, having a mindset that you're having a growth mindset of basically having willingness to play across the spectrum because data is quite a big spectrum. You can do dashboards, you can do analysis, you can write algorithms, you can do data ops, you can do data engineering. Willing, are you willing to play across the spectrum and not saying, nope, this is what I want to do. I will not do everything else. It's going to be really hard. Um, it works really well if you're working for a really large organization where they're going to specialize in research in it. What people miss often when I speak to a lot of data scientists is like, they think everyone's going to end up working for a Facebook or a Google and in their yeah. research department. Mm -hmm. good for you if you really get to do it yeah. but when you if you work for someone else in a smaller company you will have to be willing to wear multiple hats so that flexibility and willingness is more important so those three things ability to learn unlearn and relearn being flexible and applying common sense those three things that i typically call out 
Definitely, definitely. And I know that um, even in the more the technical side of data, that's moved a lot over the last few years as well, where um, clients that I've recruited for, they don't just want, um, you know, their engineers to be sitting in the back, just coding away and uh, never have a voice or an opinion. And that's become huge over the last few years where they want their the back end teams to be integrated and to be talking to to the business and the people, um, you know, to understand better rather than just doing what they're told to do. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, like you said, being flexible, being adaptable, you know, I think that's a huge part of being being, I suppose, in a really you know successful business um, and and growing. Because if you just kind of stick to what you know and do what you do, there's you know you, you're probably limiting yourself. I think quite a bit, especially with where things are going now. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, where do you see the industry heading? I think it will become more, it'll become a plus skill. Like I said, everyone is going to be doing it. So data as a teams, as a separate team won't exist like it does today. Mm-hmm. It'll become more integrated with the business units. It'll be part of everyone's job is what I like to think uh, to the fact that my job will become redundant and I'll have to do something else. It's ideally <laughs> what I think we have to in the next 10 years. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and what does the future look like for you? I mean, you're obviously, you know, got a huge, um, you know, you, you know, you, you're doing some great stuff there. But, you know, what, you know, I suppose, whether it's in data or not, what does the future look like for you? I'd like to think that roles open up where people want to use the data skill set that I bring or the data superpower I bring and try to improve a business, become a more of an operator and try to improve a business or try to improve a business function. That's where I probably see myself doing something in a, in a few years time. Excellent, excellent. And um, how do you, I mean, you're obviously an extremely, extremely intelligent, smart guy, Shira. So, um, you know, but we're, you know, I think the, the smartest of people continue to educate themselves. So how do you educate yourself or keep yourself current with what's going on? How do you keep up? So one is my team. So I try to see what my team's trying to learn and try to either compete with them or learn along with them. So that really keeps me updated. And two is that when you hire really smart people, they want to build some really cool things. And to be able to have a, a half decent conversation with them, you need to learn and pick up stuff. That's how I try to pick up a lot of these things. It's because my team says we want to do X, Y, and Z. And I like, I have no idea what that is. I go and read up about it to make sure that I can have a really good conversation with them. So that's my team's what motivates me to learn something new the time excellent and what would your tips be and i do ask this um to, to most of my guests what would your tips be for i suppose your new sort of aspiring data professionals that have just come out of university um looking to get their first step in it's always a challenge um what would your advice be to, to them for me it'd be you'll have to do boring work to be able to do the fun work so what happens more often than not when you're fresh and out of uni and into your first job is when you get the boring work, you immediately want to look for something else. I'd say put up with the boring work and try to make it fun so that you can get to do the fun work. I think that's something I've learned the hard way. I've done all the boring work to be able to do the good work. So that's probably what I would definitely advise them. And two, don't worry about certifications and certificates. It's a working skill. You can just pick the skills on the job. So it really, all you have to do is make sure that you turn up, try to make, do what you do better every day and that will make, make it easier for you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's been um, it's been awesome. I mean, I, I always learn so much from uh, these um, the, these podcasts because 
as I said, I'm, I don't necessarily have a huge background. I, I did business information systems at uni, but I didn't put any of it to use. So, and I wish I did now. I'd probably be in my, you know, doing doing a job probably similar to yours, um, Shira. But, um, you know, thank you so much. It's been it's been great. Um, and look, I, I look forward to sharing this, obviously, with the community. Um, are you happy for um, anyone if they wanted to reach out to you? I know you're extremely busy, but if they wanted to, are you happy for them to sort of reach out yeah, to you? Yeah, and always, yeah, I do that a lot for people try to help them with either their career paths or trying to understand where they're trying to go and definitely do that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Rina. Thanks, Shira.